G'day and welcome to a Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher, so no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. But today, I'd like to introduce you to Spencer Huskin, who is a PhD candidate in sociology under the supervision of Dr. Martin Hand. Welcome to Grad Chat, Spencer. Thank you. So before we actually start talking about Spencer's research, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to introduce another topic that I thought would be really good to get started. In fact, that was the reason why Spencer came um, and, and agreed to come on the show today, other than to talk about his own research. But Spencer, you you were recently the co-chair of a or the first Queen's University digitalization conference. Can you tell us a bit about what the conference was and then what did you actually want to get involved in it yourself? Absolutely. So it was the first annual digitalization conference. So the idea is this is going to be a new thing that Queen's we are going to host every year. The conference itself emerged from the Digital Transformation Research Group that is led by Dr. Catherine Broman over at Smith. Right. And it is an interdisciplinary uh, research cluster. And this, this group is working towards being on the forefront of digital transformation issues, and particularly in the Canadian context, and establishing themselves as, as the go-to for this. And this conference really was uh, a bottom-up approach to get students and faculty involved in what is undoubtedly a broad topic, right? Digitalization. Mm -hmm. um, so we can talk a little bit about that more later. My participation in the conference started with some coursework that I took over uh, in the OB program at Smith. I'm a sociologist, but for my coursework requirements, I took a couple classes over there and I was introduced to some folks who thought, hey, this research kind of falls under what this group is doing. Would you be interested? And then I got in discussions with Dr. Broman and Patrick, who was the co-chair for this conference, and we really decided that this is a great opportunity to have an interdisciplinary forum where students could connect and something that really gets the conversation started. Um, it's really hard to break down a lot of those departmental barriers or their, those disciplinary right. barriers that we often get siloed in, be it for, you know, we're different formats of publication, different sort of reasons for operating, but nevertheless, research is happening that cuts across all of these threads, especially when we start to talk about inequalities, corporate responsibility, and other issues that are at the forefront of, of digital age, so to speak. Yeah, I found it a, a fascinating format of your agenda for the day. So can you explain why you went that route? And just to explain to people, you had a keynote speaker, which was Professor Jan Recker, who is a nucleus professor for information systems and digital innovation in the Hamburg Business School at the University of Hamburg in Germany. And then you had presentations of grad students' research abstracts. 
which yes. I thought was an interesting way of putting it, just the abstracts. And so I don't know, maybe you can tell us also about, first of all, you know, why you wanted that keynote speaker and then the number of students that got involved in actually putting the abstracts in into the conference. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not sure if Dr. Recker had previous interactions with Dr. Broman or the Digital Transformation uh, Group, but he is undoubtedly a thought leader in the field. And we placed the keynote speaker first to get the day started. He's a, a great speaker. Um, I encourage you to listen to his podcast, look him up. And following that, we had three different streams. So when we had abstract submissions, and again, I guess speaking to the abstract, we wanted to hear what students were doing. So we didn't want it to necessarily have to be, you know, your dissertation project has to be finished or, you know, in late stages of revision. We want to know what students are doing. And this, this is really the central focus of the conference, which is to start a conversation. So we took right. these abstracts, which again, were across disciplines, and we tried to group them into topics that sort of made sense uh, that we could, that they all kind of intersect on. Um, so yeah, we had those three streams and we had three speakers in each and yes, it was, uh, you know, 12 to 15 minutes and then five minutes or so for questions. And then at the end of the day, we had at 4.30, we had a, a, a digital hangout, which was kind of like a debrief, but more or less to kind of, okay, what do we take away from this? What can we do next? How did right. everyone feel about this? So that was really fruitful too. And of course, this conference took place in a digital format. So that brought with it its own sort of barriers that we had to navigate. If we had the opportunity to, to extend this to a full day conference in person, perhaps the day might look different. I'm not sure yet. That's a discussion for next year, I suppose. For the next year's co-chairs. Yeah. So the three themes of the abstracts, what were the three themes? Yeah, so we had three streams. We divided them into technology and power dynamics, digitalization of work, industry, and practice, and social implications of digitalization, data, and information. So like I said before, this word digitalization it means something a lot different to different folks across disciplines, uh, yet we're all doing work in this broad field. And it's a huge thing to try and pin down, particularly as a sociologist, when our job is to contextualize these sorts of things a lot of the time. So, yeah. So those are the three streams. So, so what we, disciplines did the students come from then for those those themes? So we had several folks from the sociology department. Uh, one of our speakers in particular was from the surveillance studies center. And then we had students from Smith. So I don't know exactly which stream they're in in Smith, but I believe, I think they yeah, were. Yeah, because they've got eight streams there in their, yeah, in their management yeah. program, so... Yeah. Oh, that's that's really good. It sounded like a lot of fun. And, and, and I like the fact that you had this digital at Queen's Hangout, you called it, in your agenda. Like you said, it was an opportunity to sort of discuss how things went, what, what could you take away from it, how can people reflect, but also providing that social aspect of mm. getting students from other disciplines to meet each other. And I wonder, I know myself, you know, for, for the past 18 months, we've all been doing everything online. And even though it was a bit of a novelty at the beginning, I think I'm over it. 
So, yeah. you know, I, I really want to get back to the in-person type conference because I actually find it very difficult to concentrate at a conference online. So I, I wonder if, you know, moving forward, it would be a combination of or maybe a hybrid sort of conference moving forward for your group. Well, fingers crossed, you know, I would, I would love for the conference to, to be fully in person speaking for myself. However, we may have speakers from different, different places and, you know, it would be ironic to have a conference on digitalization and not be able to accommodate, <laughs> not use you know, it. Uh, <laughs> zoom people in to, to the conference. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, that, that is the beauty. We've all learned now that we can do a hybrid model. And of course, with uh, Queen's has done a lot of renovating over the summer to upgrade our classes to allow more of that hybrid model to allow more accessibility, actually. So that's something that's really important for us. So hopefully next year, this will be this again, another success for you. I mean, I'm assuming you, you saw it as a success for the first time yeah, around absolutely. And, yeah. and something for your group to build on moving forward so well done on that thank you so let's get on to your own work because as you said it does overlap with this whole digitalization sort of framework that you've just explained in the conference and so for everyone Spencer's research topic is the sociological examination of hybrid work and digital working practices, which, of course, we've all suddenly, you know, again, in the past 18 months, we've all had to sort of flip the way we we think about how we do our work each day. So I was looking at your, your research synopsis here. So before we go on, the, on to the question, I highlighted some areas in your synopsis that you gave to me. You know, you talked about the ubiquity, speed and variance of these changes, risk leaving understanding of hybrid work open to interpretation. And then you use another section, so the ways we engage with work, primarily how digital technology mediates both shifts in working practices through remote and flexible working models, as well as our expectations of work-life balance. So maybe, can you just give us, before we go into questions, a bit of an overview of your examining of the hybrid work area for yeah, us. Absolutely. So just a little bit of context, my, my sort of sociological stream in our department, <laughs> we have different streams is media information and surveillance. Broadly speaking, I've always been interested in the intersect of, of new media technologies and mediated practices and, and how that takes shape in the most mundane intricacies of everyday life. Through COVID-19, we've seen this profound transformation of, of what constitutes work. And so mm -hmm. a sociological examination of that is to dig into that, ask different questions. Who's, who's benefiting from this? What sort of inequalities emerge from these sorts of things? There's, there's a breadth of, of sociological literature, which already speaks to, you know, digital working practices and the sorts of inequalities that, that emerge there. And one particular thing for me, kind of using COVID as the hinge point is this term hybrid work is a, is a loosely defined concept. And it might mean one thing to me and something different to the organization who I work for, who undoubtedly is implementing the policies which affect every aspect of my working life. Recently, there was a survey uh, done by KPMG that really illuminated some of these discrepancies because 77% of Canadians or respondents on the survey um, liked, reported that they liked the idea of a hybrid workplace model. 
and 71% thought that hybrid working practices should be standard. Yet, almost half of those respondents also said that individuals do not think that their employer understands the implications of a hybrid workplace model. And many of them worried about if they didn't go back into the workplace, what sort of consequences, both formal and informal, would occur there. You know, that that idea of the grapevine in the workplace and, and what sort of cultural aspects do they lose or, or how might their uh, employer look at them differently. So there's a lot of questions to ask here about the who, the what, and the how. And so I'm particularly interested in looking at this across different sectors and looking at first, you know, a content analysis of of available workplace policies. What are workplaces saying? What are the the deliverables that are written in stone for hybrid workers? You know, is is remote work for an individual hybrid work for an organization if other individuals are in person? So it's to start to unpack sort of these things and the taken for granted assumptions that we have about hybrid work other than, you know, this is great. I can, you know, be with my family more, but also how are working hours being prolonged? How are gendered uh, inequalities in the home being uh, reified through hybrid work models? Um, How are marginalized people affected by this? Yeah, and I, and I, as you mentioned, with COVID, it sort of brought it all to the fore of this different model that people, work environments and individuals need to think about. And so, you know, a university setting is a classic uh, test case or, or research group for you to look at because, you know, we've got those who are teachers versus, you know, staff who are administrative staff versus those that are um, sort of service departments like PPS, physical plant services. So they actually need to be there to do their their function. But the big thing to me was that community part of, you know, we, you mentioned, you know, it's kind of like fear of missing out on, on all those extra conversations yeah. that you would have yeah. in person, which if you're at home, you're not going to hear any of that. Um, yep. And then the other part of, you know, you talked about time, you know, it could it could create working more because you're working from home. But on the other side is if you look at an organization's point of view, are they actually putting in the hours that we're paying them for? So it's both of those ways as well. And I think it was interesting you wrote at the bottom here, two broad aims of your research is to understand how hybrid work is being framed in different sectors of the Canadian economy at the institutional and policy level, and then two, to examine the ways that hybrid work practices are being adopted and understood at the individual level. So two really key points there. So let's go on to some of the questions. And and some of it you have alluded to already, but maybe you can elaborate a little bit more. You know, how are our understandings of work and the workplace changing in the wake of COVID-19? I mean, there's a really obvious question. It's changed. (laughs) Obvious answer, I should say. It has changed. But how do you see our understanding of work and the workplace changing because of COVID? This could range from these, you know, huge existential questions of do we value labor in the same way that we did before? And in many ways, that's a, you know, impossible question to answer a lot of the time. Um, But something even as simple as work-life balance, or I guess this is where that 
intersection of the mediated practices of work come into play here. Through COVID, we've really, uh, a lot of industries have adopted new technologies. Maybe they didn't use Teams or Slack before, et cetera. Nevertheless, there's all of these technologies that are now equipped in our daily work day, working days that may have not been before. And all of these things are supposed to produce more free time for us or have us do things more efficiently. And yet we feel more and more pressed for time. And so I'm interested in that with COVID, this idea of the fracturing of the working hours when there's an expectation of individuals to respond to emails at at all hours and what are what are the implications of that what are the consequences if they don't i guess here what i'm looking at is just largely what are the unintended consequences of all of these mm-hmm. things and as a sociologist that's that's the best question i think i can ask what are the unintended consequences of these sorts of things oh, sorry. good point because i know just during this time you know there's some people who have loved working from home and are actually thriving working from home. If you're looking at uh, your wellness, if your own personal wellness, are actually thriving from that. And then there's others who just think, as you uh, alluded to, the fact that they feel like they're working all day, every day now because it's at home. It's a bit of a mindset there just to start with on that wellness part. Not to forget on an organizational point of view is, you know, what is economically the best way for this organization. I mean, not thinking about Queens, but I know outside a lot of organizations are saying, well, why are we renting office space when this person can work from home? So, you know, there's the economies that come come into that as well. So I guess the next question is, is who benefits from alternate working practices and what sort of inequalities are either emergent or amplified by this? This is one of the key research questions and and I think fruitful contributions that my research will continue to make is exploring this. The simple answer to this is I don't know right now. We don't know, but uh, nevertheless, there are reports, there are ICTC. Um, they, they conducted a, a future of work research document or they produced a research document and they conducted several uh, qualitative interviews and individuals cited all sorts of different identity markers for reasons why they wanted hybrid working practices. And there were uh, questions about inequality, gendered inequality there where, you know, there was the reification of gendered norms in the household as people were trying to navigate a work-life balance with children at home during COVID as well. So my question broadly there is to, to, again, not to make a normative judgment of this is good or this is bad, but rather who, who's benefiting from these things? Presumably, you know, professional class individuals that have access to the fastest internet connectivity, et cetera, because again, that's a conversation that I think that we often don't have something as simple as, as internet connections and, and what that right. might access yeah, to point. internet or, you know, uh, access mm-hmm. to home office spaces where we can curate backgrounds or, or, you know, set things up. So yeah, down to the, 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 the individual level factors of inequality and as large as these sort of systemic issues of who benefits from this. And a lot of that is, you know, again, unpacking this, this very neoliberal 
capitalist model of, of production where responsibility is individualized, individuals are becoming increasingly pressed with managing their time more efficiently, everything mm-hmm. becomes about, you know, this, this sort of uh, self-management, self-production narrative. Well, it's interesting too, because you mentioned earlier about emails, like we're, we're more and more answering emails long, long after the so-called workday has finished. And yet there was, um, if I, and please correct me if I've got this wrong, there was a study, and I don't know which country it is, or not even a study, I think they do it now, where no emails or some organizations, there's no emails after a certain time. Um, and it's actually frowned on to email anyone, even if you're just trying to clear your plate, yeah. it's frowned on for even sending it, you know, put it in your draft and send it off in the morning when it is. And, it, and it's proved that their work-life balance seemed to be a lot better. So in terms of the Canadian context, though, and for, and for your particular study, how are you collecting data to help frame uh, your answers to, to all yeah. of this? So right now I am collecting available policies from organizations that have released them. So I'm putting these into in vivo for, for coding to look at themes of, you know, what things are similar, what things are different, etc. And that's not just for a Canadian context. My idea there was that there's, there's no government legislation on hybrid work yet. Maybe we'll look to other countries that might've implemented that. So I've been collecting data from anywhere that I can, so I can build a comparative case with what's going on in Canada. As for the rest of my data, it will be uh, qualitative interviews that I'm going to conduct with people uh, across three different sectors of work, public service sector, self-employed and private sector workers. And that's where I really want to get into some of these issues of inequality and understanding exactly what you're talking about. What are the the institutional norms? What are the cultural norms? How do they navigate those? What sort of practices have they built to maybe resist institutional frameworks to, to understand how they are navigating these things all in the context of, you know, this interplay between new media and society and how we co-construct these ideas about work. Yeah, it's interesting actually, because even I've sat on a few interview panels lately and you get asked from the interviewee now is this full-time on campus or is it um can I work from home and it's something I never even thought about uh, in the past but of course because organizations are going to have to think about that now because not everyone wants to come on campus so which jobs allow that and which ones wouldn't and if you do allow it, do the people have the infrastructure they need to be able to do that job correctly? Whose responsibility is that? Uh, so it's all those it's sort of infrastructure and um, and how that changes the, the working environment for that particular organization. Absolutely. So how do individuals experience increasingly digitally mediated working environments? Okay, yeah. So that's, putting you on the spot there. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I I think I sort of brushed on that earlier when I was talking about you know the introduction of platforms such as uh, Slack and and Teams, etc. And my perspective here is not to sort of pin these things as you know these apparatuses that are always external to the individual 
and act on us, but rather how do we make sense of these? How do these inform our working practices? How, how do we use these? Because the thing about any sort of platform or digital environment is sure they may be produced to do a certain thing or to curate a certain stream of information but it's never quite clear how these things are being used how these things are being taken up i think something as simple as you know um instagram i don't know if this is true or not but when it initially came out i know it was like for food or something like that and it became the largest social media application ever so my key there is to just understand how people are navigating these navigating those things like the real subjective experience of the individual and that's important and i think that information is going to be very useful for guiding policy decisions and institutional frameworks as you say moving forward how are people experiencing this I, th- I think you brought up a point earlier too. In fact, it was from the conference that one of your colleagues who put one of the abstracts in was from the surveillance center. Yeah. And so one of the things that always makes me wonder about, and, and we've seen it here at Queen's, that with COVID where we we were forced to learn some new technologies, but that comes with a, a chance of, you know, our security being breached. So there's all those other parts that come have to come behind to keep everything secure, both for the institution as well as the individual. So I, I just wonder if, if going down when, when we're looking at how we're going to be doing this moving forward, and even with job postings and things, is you know, part of that, if you know, if if we decide you can work from home you need to make sure you got this, this, and this. Uh, mm. And then if you don't, then you don't fulfill the criteria. I don't know whether you can actually say that to someone, but it's one of those things that I guess we all need to think about a little bit more because the, all these new platforms that are coming up, while that, I mean, look what happened to Zoom in the beginning. Zoom was the, the bee's knees in the beginning, then they had some breaches. And luckily they fixed those and have made it even more secure. But, I wonder if they hadn't had those breaches in such a defined way, whether they would have looked at how to make things more secure. Absolutely. Yeah. And I I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect that the surveillance piece of the individuals, that narrative will exist. I I suspect Mm -hmm. that individuals will talk about that extensively because anecdotally, that's you know, happened in the conversations that I've had and friends that I have, uh, it's always an ongoing dialogue about, you know, being watched and what are the implications of that and how we sort of navigate our work day when our managers are either collecting information or monitoring to see if we're active on teams, you know, you keep your mouse moving or that little thing turns yellow. I never would have thought of that. (laughs) Now you tell me, I should have let no. (laughs) So I guess that actually comes to though, um, the the last question is, how do understandings of self-optimization or or self-management practice through the new working arrangements become embedded in the mundane intricacies of everyday life? Because it's very true. I mean, when someone's watching you, something goes on your head and you think it better look like I'm working or I better right. so I should say that I should be working whereas if no one's actually w- watching you 
what's to say instead of having a 15 minute break you have a 30 minute break or you know or longer so what do you think about that of people's self-management to be or self-will to do the right thing for the organization who's actually paying for them and and allowing them to have this flexible work environment i think one of the things to speak to there is even like you said how those sorts of practices that are compartmentalized perhaps to the working day are not so compartmentalized when they start to seep into how we live our everyday life. And I'm always interested in these narratives of self-improvement and self-help. Again, not in a, you know, a normative stance to say these things are bad, but sociologically to understand how they function and the ways in which people take them up. And so all of these self-management techniques and things that we use on our work days, on teams, on whatever we're using, inevitably have some creep into how we sort of go about our daily business. And, you know, you can look at technologies such as the Apple Watch or any sort of fitness tracker. And it's really this culture of productivity that has made activities out of non-activities. For example, um, sleep. Since when was sleep not just this time of the day that was devoid of any sort of thing, but now we track our sleep, we monitor it. It's an activity to be worked on, to be refined in order to optimize ourselves, to work more efficiently. So this idea of doing all of these things, these techniques, these management techniques to become more efficient workers, what is going on there? And and, uh, yeah, I'm really interested. Something I've written about extensively prior to my PhD. So that's kind of how I tie all these things together now. Well, I mean, what happened with COVID and, and your particular research, it's, you've got no shortage of information <laughs> to, yeah. to sort of sift through and sort of help you with that. And I, I take my hat off to you because it's, like I said, it's huge, but I'm sure you're going to be able to come through with some main areas that uh, people will understand or, or need to consider moving forward uh, in, in the workplace, both for the organization as well as the individual for that work-life balance, which let's face it, with uh, life these days, things, as you said earlier, things get busier and busier and we seem to have less time to actually look after ourselves. But we want to be able to find that balance of being, feeling like you've been constructed and done something for, to help your organization and, and the you know the, the reasons for that particular organization but at the same time so for having a sense of accomplishment both on doing that job as well as accomplishment in looking after ourselves so well done <laughs> i think you're going to do fabulously and i really do appreciate you spencer coming on the show today to explain one your research and also how the conference well went and so good luck with future years on that and also with your finishing off your phd so thank you Thank you so much. So that's it, everyone. A, another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher or Spotify. Just type in a Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray.
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.